You're listening to the Fanfic Maverick Podcast, the show where I talk to fanfiction writers about their work and the marvelous world of fanfiction. This show may contain adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. The following paragraphs are from Chapter 23 of a fanfiction story titled The Best Kept Secrets by today's guest fanfiction writer, Dan Puff. Albus scarfed down his food quickly. Sensing his impatience, Scorpius shoveled down his own breakfast. When he was finished, Albus jumped up, striding swiftly from the great hall. Mouth still full of sausage and bacon, Scorpius ran after him. All three of his parents had taken him seriously, riding back right away and fussing at the owls to rush their responses, for them to fly in with such haste, clearly agitated as they left. Honestly, Albus felt a bit silly for his overreaction, but also comforted that they had written back to him. He hadn't been sure what to expect, really. Only back in the safety of the Slytherin common room did Albus rip open the letters, eagerly scanning their contents. From Severus Snape, Paradise Place, Falmouth, to Albus Potter, The Great Hall, Hogwarts, Albus... Too often in my life I have crushed my own chances for happiness. So inexperienced was I with love, I destroyed every ounce of it I was generously given. You may know that I once loved your grandmother, Lily Evans. No one had given me the care and attention she had, and I basked in her light. Try as I might, I could never hold on, always seeking to smother and hide what should be shared freely. With biting words I drove her away. With harsher words still, I drove away your father. Had I not, matters may have played out differently. Perhaps he and your mother would never have reunited. Had I known how to accept and treasure the hearts given unto my care, I may have been a better parent to you. There is no changing the past. I cannot undo the damage I wrought with my inability to accept and treasure the love given to me freely. What I can do is urge you not to follow my path. You have known love, Albus. The love of friendship is shared with Scorpius Malfoy. The love of family is shared by your parents and siblings and myself. Now you are offered the love of a pure and good heart. It is not a gift to be trampled or handled carelessly. It is not a gift to spurn out of fear. There are no guarantees in this life, my son. I cannot promise all will be well. What I can promise is a life of misery and loneliness should you turn away every chance at happiness. You are wiser and stronger than I ever was. If you love this girl, you owe it to not only her, but to yourself to see it through. Come what may, you should experience love and life openly, fearlessly. Learn from my mistakes. My greatest regret in this life has been my own part in all of my suffering. I would regret more that my mistakes should lead you to the life I have lived. There is no changing the past, but the future contains endless possibility. Sincerely, your father. To the north, south, east, and west four corners of the world, 
Greetings from the wild, arid desert of the American Southwest. I'm your host, Chaos Blue, and this is the Fanfic Maverick Podcast. Before we get started today, I do want to do a couple of quick shout-outs. First, a huge thank you to everyone who has reached out to me these last couple of months. Many of you have volunteered to come on the show as guests or submitted interview requests for your favorite fan fiction writers. I've even gotten messages from folks who just wanted to let me know that they're enjoying the podcast. I love hearing from all of you. It lights me up. It makes my day. So thank you so much for reaching out. I also owe a huge shout out to my friend Yodeling Prospector. We swap emails back and forth constantly. And he recently gifted me a couple of fabulous one-shots on AO3, which I absolutely loved. So thank you so much for being awesome, YP. Today's special guest fanfiction writer is Dan Puff. She's been a member of AO3 since 2013 and has a whopping 78 fics posted for Harry Potter. Damn! She's a baking wizard and she can whip up just about anything from banana bread to cakes, to chocolate chip cookies. It is making me hungry just talking about it. (laughs) She's also a coffee enthusiast. Hell yeah. Dan Puff loves dancing to her favorite music. Me too. She's a Taurus with fiery Leo and Aries energy and loves all things astrology, tarot, and crystals. Dan Puff, thank you so much for being here today and speaking with me. I'm so, so excited to talk to you. Welcome to the Fanfic Maverick. How are you? I am fantastic. Awesome. Yes, yes. We're going to have a great show today. Before we get started, I just have to tell you, in honor of you being here on the show today, I do have my gorgeous quartz and selenite crystal babies in the studio today just for you. So Nice. (laughs) I have my rose quartz and my pink tourmaline with me, so... I love that tourmaline. I have me some tourmaline in the car. Goes with me everywhere I go. We have all the good energy with us today. We absolutely do. It's going to be a great show. Again, before we get started, I also wanted to just really quick thank you for the astrology insights that you provided a couple of weeks ago. A lot of you may remember the episode that I did last month with Michelle Black. We were talking about Aizawa's sun sign, his uh, astrology signs on that episode. And I was having a really hard time thinking of Aizawa as a Scorpio. And Danny sent me the most amazing email with all of this information explaining all of the different things that could go into Aizawa's very obvious earth energy in conjunction with the Scorpio sun sign. And it made such total sense and totally blew my mind and kind of help me understand what's going on there with Aizawa being a Scorpio. So. Danny, thank you so much for being a hero there and for setting me straight. That was such an amazing email and such a wealth of information. So thank you so much for that. Of course, I love sharing the good astrology knowledge and making sure everyone knows that it is not just your sun sign you have to worry about. Right, right. You had mentioned that there was a, a moon sign that we needed to look at and also the rising sign. I think that you and I both decided that our new head canon is that Aizawa is Scorpio sun sign with Capricorn moon and Capricorn rising, right? A hundred percent, (laughs) yes. That's the new headcanon, guys. There's nothing you can do about it. It's set in stone. But it absolutely does explain a lot. So that was such a wonderful email to receive. I loved that so much. 
So, of course, when we begin an episode, I always want to go all the way back to the beginning, to your fan fiction origin story, where you got started. How did you first discover fan fiction? That is an excellent question and one of my favorite stories to tell, actually, <laughs> because I was very young when I discovered fan fiction. Too young, arguably, but I was always a big reader. Like, I don't remember my life before reading. You know, this was back in the days of like dial up internet, and you, you obviously can't hog the computer when you need it for you know, phones. So my brother and I were allowed on for like 30 minutes at a time. And one day when I was 11 years old, so this was back in 2003 or 2004, I forget how I discovered Google, but I discovered Google. And there's this wealth of information on the internet. So you learn about Google and it's like, what do I want to search? And I had no idea. I'd never encountered a search engine before. So I was very into Harry Potter. So I was encountering Google for the first time, was like, let me look up Harry Potter stuff. I cannot tell you what search term I used. I don't remember. This was 18 years ago. <laughs> but I remember the first thing I clicked on was a fanfic and I'd never heard of fan fiction. I knew nothing about it. And the first thing I clicked on was this explicit dreary fic. Oh god. Yeah. And I remember in the fanfic it was Draco Harry and it was lots of explicit scenes. I didn't know about gay people. So I was like, oh, okay. So they're two dudes and they're having sex. Okay. 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 I'm like learning all this information. It was a nice experience because like I loved Harry Potter and this was like a different Harry Potter story. Like how cool. And I'd never thought of Harry and Draco. Like it was so interesting. I should not have been reading it at that age, but I did. But what is most interesting about that fanfic in particular is that in the story, you know, it's Draco Harry, but Snape had the hots for Draco. And I was like, okay, that's way more interesting than Draco Harry, actually. But I was a big Snape fan for one. But then also, as my partner says, I am a main character simp. So I always love the main characters for stories. So I had the very brief thought of, oh, well, Snape Draco is more interesting than Draco Harry, but you know what's more interesting than that? Harry Snape! So after that fanfic, I was like, I wonder if there are Harry Snape stories out there. So I started looking up Harry Snape stories, and I have not stopped reading Snary stories ever since. Oh my god, so you got into Snary pretty early on then, it sounds like. Yeah, I read the one dreary fic and then nothing but snary. <laughs> oh my god! That is so, so funny though. Okay, so I have to ask, because you were so young, was there anything sh shocking about like what you found and what you read? Do you remember feeling like shocked and outraged by it? Or was it just like, oh my god, this is so cool and interesting? Mostly the cool, interesting reaction, but another thing about my upbringing is that my parents never really kept us from any sort of content. Like, 
they didn't keep us from watching, say, like, horror films. Like, we grew up watching rated R horror films with nudity and violence. And if we listened to songs, like, they weren't going to gasp in horror that their children are hearing curse words. They never hid us from anything. And, you know, I knew about sex. I just, they didn't tell me about gay people. So it was more just like, oh, gay people are a thing. And I just kind of <laughs> rolled with it. I was like, oh, this is interesting. And I don't know, I was more fascinated by it and just really quickly absorbing the information. So it was like surprising in a way because a lot of it was stuff I'd not seen before. But it wasn't so shocking because, you know, I've been exposed to other things, you know, horror films <laughs> are way worse than, you know, two teenage boys going at it. So no, I was just so super curious because uh, I was pretty young, too, when I first discovered slash fic. I wasn't quite as young, but I was like, I was 14 back in 1997 when the Internet was a little bit more brand new. And I remember like reading these slash stories. It wasn't in Harry Potter. It was in other fandoms, but 14 years old. And never once did it occur to me at 14, like, I'm too young for this. Like, you shouldn't be reading this. It was just fascination with the story. Like, oh, my God, I didn't even know you could make a story with characters from TV shows that you love. And this is so cool. And I remember at 14 years old, I found this one slash story. It was posted on somebody's personal GeoCities site, but the author only had chapters one and two posted and it was supposed to be a three chapter story and I was like oh my gosh where's the last chapter to the story I have to know like how this ends so at 14 years old I emailed this author on the internet asking her if she happens to have chapter three to post so I can finish the story and she's probably like some middle-aged lady out in Iowa or something and has no idea that I'm 14 years old asking for the rest of her smut fic. But she was super cool about it. And she's like, yeah, here you go. And I was able to finish the story. But sometimes I look back on that and I think, damn, I was really young when I was first exposed to that stuff. But I really don't feel like it had any adverse effect on me being exposed to that stuff so young. Sometimes when I hear the discourse these days about whether or not young people should be reading stuff like that. I just laugh and I think, well, I was, you know, I turned out fine. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's my thought, too. But again, you know, I, I grew up not being hidden from content. And my, my mom was like, yeah, we didn't want to hide you or shelter you from things. These are things in the world. So I don't know. I was, I guess, not super protected from things ever. and. I feel like I'm a fine, decent human. I don't go out, you know, committing crimes everywhere <laughs> because I watched horror films. So I, I think I turned out pretty okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's no like lingering trauma because of what you were exposed to so young or anything. Yeah. <laughs> now, being so young, discovering fan fiction for the first time, do you remember what made you want to start writing fan fiction yourself? And were you young when you first started writing? I was young. Um, much like I said, I've like always been an avid reader. I feel like I've always been a writer. Like I don't really remember life without stories and I don't really remember life without being very creative and having a very strong imagination. But with fanfics specifically, I started posting 
fanfics when I was 13 on adult fanfiction. <laughs> Are you talking about adultfanfiction.net? Yes. Oh, almost nobody remembers that site, but I remember that site. I was there all the time. I was 13. I look back, I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> Because, you know, it, I'm not posting um, rated G stories on AFF. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, almost no one was, to be fair, right? <laughs> yeah. But I had been reading fanfic by then at that point for a year or two. And I loved the story so much and I couldn't get enough of them. Like, I was tearing through them. Any scenery I could get my hands on. I was using Google to the best of its abilities. On every website I could find, I was inhaling snary stories. So it finally got to a point where I was like, I have to write them myself now. <laughs> now, what was that experience like for you, writing your first piece of fiction? I don't know. I want to say it was fun. Like, I wasn't taking myself too seriously at 13, I don't think. It was... I'm a very anxious person. I always have been. So I think I was kind of paranoid oh, what if they can just tell that I'm 13 and I know I'm not supposed to be doing this? So it was kind of thrilling in a way because I knew I wasn't supposed to be doing it, but I was doing it anyway. And, you know, trying to hide my snary stories from my family when I'm writing it on the family computer and then going on this website hoping there's no FBI agent on the other side like, she's 13, get her off! <laughs> <laughs> or your family, like, going through the history on the browser to see which websites you've been visiting and stuff like that. <laughs> yes. And what's funny is that when I tell people, you know, oh, I discovered fanfic when I was 11. It was explicit. I started writing when I was 13. Everyone's like, where were your parents? And I'm like, good question. But realistically, at that time... My mom was pregnant with my sister when I was 11, and then he moved after she was born, and then my parents got divorced, so there was a lot going on. Probably no one cared what I was doing on the computer. And then part of me's like, well, with the other media, they were allowing us to consume, like, the horror films, but, you know, my mom was also giving books, like, Flowers in the Attic, that has, you know, child abuse and imprisonment and incest, so I'm like... Well, would she have really cared? I don't know. We've never talked about it. Part of me wants to be like, so mom, do you know what I was doing on the internet back in those days? <laughs> oh my God. That is a conversation that I dread having with my folks. Because like, look, sometimes I feel like it doesn't really matter who the parents are of these kids. If the kid wants to do something online, they're going to find a way to do it. Because like, yo, my parents were so strict and they did not let us like consume any kind of media that they felt was inappropriate. If they had known what I was doing, I would have lost all of my internet privileges, but they didn't know because I got really good at hiding it and deleting my browser history and all that stuff. And we had the same setup you did. We had a family computer in the middle of the living room where everybody could see what everyone was doing. I have no idea to this day how I kept all that stuff hidden for years without anybody catching on, even in a strict household where the parents are super strict, kids are going to do what they're going to do, you know, because I certainly did. So I definitely agree. I don't know that I could have been stopped, <laughs> but I was going out of my way. I would even, like I said, we were only allowed on the computer for, you know, bits at a time. I remember like 
if no one was watching, like, sneaking onto the computer for extra time when I shouldn't have. I don't think anything was going to stop me from getting my hit of snary. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You just want your hit of fan fiction or whatever it is that you're doing online. I think sometimes we can try to curb what the kids are doing online these days, but uh, ultimately they're just going to do what they're going to do. So there was this Tumblr post <laughs> that was going around. And I think that there's different variations of these types of Tumblr posts. And it's those Tumblr posts that are like, what kind of writer are you? Right. And I know that you had one of those come your way a little bit ago and you picked, what was it? The chocolate box? The chocolate box writer? Did you want to talk about that and tell me what that means? Yes. So it was this post on Tumblr where it was the different types of writers. There was like the specialist, if I remember. And one of the options was the chocolate box, which is just basically saying there's a variety. This author writes a variety of things. And that was very me because I do have 70 Harry Potter works on AO3 right now. And I feel like I have a good, like I said, a good variety of things. My friends pick on me that they wish I would stop writing so much angst because I do favor a lot of angst, but I've written some fluffy things and some humor and different kinks. Mostly snary, but I've written some other pairings like Draco Ron and Draco Remus, Hermione and Fleur. Like you can find lots of things in my writing, I think, and I mostly favor one shots. The work we're talking about today being the more of an anomaly. I don't write a lot of very long works anymore, but it's because I like trying different things and thinking of different concepts and different moods and different points of view and just playing with different styles. So I don't know, it's just a lot of fun for me to do different things. And I feel like I have a lot to offer and a lot to look through if anyone's ever curious. I love that for so many different reasons, because as a baking enthusiast, as you are, the chocolate box one just fits you so perfectly, right? Just because of that. I don't know who out there is asking you to stop doing so much angst because let me tell you, let me tell you, maybe it's just me. I love the angst so much, although I can understand because there are a lot of people out there who like the less angsty, fluffier stuff. But I don't know. Maybe there's something wrong with me, but I am here for the angst, just so you know. So. <laughs> well, I appreciate that because I feel like I do angst very well. And maybe the point is that I do it too well. I don't know, maybe. <laughs> maybe it's like, oh, I thought I liked angst, but that hurt a little too much. <laughs> no, and maybe I'm just one of those people that enjoys the pain or something. But in a fan fiction, I want the writer to stab me in the heart multiple times with the sharpest blade possible. Like, hurt me, please, you know? Yeah, TMI, right? But yeah, Anything that can make me feel something, make me cry. I am so here for it. It is the best thing in the world. I really love the angst that's in your work that we're talking about today. And we will get to that. But I was curious to know, I've been thinking lately about fan fiction, of course. It's like all I ever think about. And I was thinking about fan fiction's impact on people's lives outside of fandom spaces. The reason that I was thinking about this is because the more that I get to know fan fiction writers, and the more that I get to know them and what they do in their real lives as professional people, the more impressed I am by how amazing these fan fiction writers are. I have encountered attorneys 
I have encountered dentists, doctors, scientists, computer programmers, all of these really amazing career-oriented people who also write fan fiction. And a lot of these people have been telling me that their experiences writing fan fiction have helped them develop skills and abilities that have also helped them in their real-life careers and their real-life projects and stuff like that. So I was just wondering if fan fiction has impacted your life outside of fandom spaces. That is a good question. I had to have a think on this one because, like I said, I've been in fandom for so long and I've been reading for so long and writing for so long. So it's the question of who was I before this? So how would I know how it's really impacted me? But I did think about it and I do think that like I'm very good with word programs and I'm good at I'm good with computers and troubleshooting problems and I think it's because you know I spent so much time on the computer doing research and writing when you're online you're going to encounter tech problems and your desperation to read a new story or write something new you're going to do what you got to do or at least for me that's how it was I was so obsessed with it where I had to figure it out. There was no problem that was going to stand between me and <laughs> what I wanted to be doing, be it, you know, reading or writing or even doing research for writing. That's another thing is I feel like I'm pretty good at utilizing the internet for research purposes because again, you know, as a writer you have to check things and do research or learning new words. So I feel like just my drive to learn new things has helped a lot in my life. But another thing I did want to mention is that the question sort of made me think of this quote by Neil Gaiman, and it goes, Fiction gives us empathy. It puts us inside the minds of other people, gives us the gifts of seeing the world through their eyes. Fiction is a lie that tells us true things over and over. And I sort of thought of that, and I think that's true for reading in that, you know, you're learning about different people and different experiences. And I think being a writer, you know, writing in a fandom space is just that on another level because you're really putting yourself in someone else's shoes and in their experiences and you're having to give them that voice and in portraying that person and being that intimate and connected to them, I think helps you understand people better, at least in my thought, that's how it is. That is gorgeous, Danny. That is gorgeous. I love that so much because one of the things that I do really appreciate about all of the fan fiction writers that I've encountered so far, and at this point, I've talked to a lot of you guys, I am blown away by how deeply you writers understand the human experience, how deeply you understand these characters on a psychological level, and how deeply you understand human nature. I've never encountered anything like it. So yes, 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 yes. Like the skills that you guys are learning about how to relate and understand human behavior on the deepest psychological level possible is unparalleled. I absolutely love it. It makes my heart sing because I have never met a group of people more empathetic and more thoughtful about these kinds of things in my whole life. You guys are amazing that way. Well, thanks. That's good to hear because I really care about people. 
I like learning about people and meeting new people and understanding them. I guess in reading and writing, it's a lot like that. I play these ask games on Tumblr where I'm like, oh, ask me some questions. And one of them was someone sent an ask that was, do the characters ever impact your writing style? This kind of makes me think of that because my answer was yes, 100%, because they're also individual. So, you know, how I write Snape POV is going to be different from how I write Draco POV. And it's really just being able to think of things from a different person's perspective and understanding them and being able to tell the story the way they would tell it, what is doing them justice. And that's what I like about writing is that I like being able to, even though they're they're fictional characters, for me, it feels like the more I do it, the more I'm understanding people and how different people are and how different relationships are. And I feel like part of it comes from what I know, but I feel like the more I do it, the more I'm learning and the more it's opening my mind for people in my real life. Because if I can love these characters for all of their flaws and understanding them at their best and worst, then I can do that for real people too. Yes, yes, I agree with that 100%. You know, before the show, we were talking a little bit about various things. I know that at one point, I was joking around and I was admitting that as a Capricorn Earth sign, I sometimes struggle really bad with being able to understand the experiences that other people are having or understand the ways that other people go through life because, you know, everybody's different and we all have fundamental differences in the way that we experience the world, right? It took me a really long time to understand that. I feel like reading fan fiction has in many ways helped me to open up my own perspective on other people's internal experiences in day-to-day life. Sometimes I like to think of you fan fiction writers as the guides, guiding people like me into the inner worlds of these other people. Because like you said, you're diving into the life experiences of all of these various characters, and you sort of act like my guide to understanding where these particular different characters are coming from, what they're thinking about, how they're approaching their problems and their challenges. It's just amazing. What would I do without you? I think reading can be helpful in so many ways, and that's just one of the many gifts that fiction gives us. That kind of segues us into the next part. We all know that I love talking about fan fiction on the show, and I can't help it, and so that's what we talk about. I wanted to talk about fan fiction, you know, as a general concept, like we always do. But for some reason, I approach this question a little bit differently than I normally do. So let's say, right, that you had the opportunity to do like a three-minute TED Talk. I don't know if you're familiar with those TED Talks, but um, if you could give a three-minute TED Talk on the fan fiction community or fan fiction as a concept... And this room of people might not be familiar with the fan fiction community or fan fiction at all. What would you say to those people? What would you want them to know about fan fiction? This was a fun question to think about because I feel like a lot of people would go into it with very sophisticated and meaningful responses. And the only thing I can think, like the first thing that came to mind was, it's just fun. It's so fun. The more I thought about it, the more you can really apply a deeper meaning to that. But I think it's important in a way to not 
undercut the value of fun and enjoyment. You can get so much from stories and stories are so very valuable and they have been for all of human history. You can learn about other people, but not just that. You learn about different life experiences, different cultures, different skills. Even you can learn different trivia and knowledge that you didn't have before. Stories can be very therapeutic. And this is how I sort of thought about the fun part of it is that you can explore, you know, your own emotions or other people's emotions. It can be very therapeutic reading and writing and seeing experiences that you're dealing with. But it can also be, on the flip side, an escape, a way to, for the people who don't care for angst, escaping the real-life stress by reading a good coffee shop AU or just fluffy domestic life, slice of life. It can just feel good, and it doesn't have to be more serious than that, but that doesn't mean that doesn't have value. Life is hard enough. We should have fun and we should be able to feel good. And if you have fun by really delving into the nitty gritty and having great discussions about the characters and their actions, then that's fun for you. But it doesn't have to be that serious. It is just as important to sit back with a good story and be like, you know what? This is fun. I'm having a good time. This is adding value to my life because it's good. It's just, it feels good. I adore that answer. I love what you said about life being hard enough. And it is, right? Life is hard enough. And if we're finding joy from something that's so harmless, right? Because, <laughs> you know, fan fiction's not hurting anybody. It's so harmless and it's so much fun. Then why can't we find the joy? anywhere that we can find it, because you're right, life is hard enough. I love that answer. That is beautiful. So in your previous answer to a couple of my questions, you did mention that you were like 11 when you discovered Harry Potter fan fiction for the first time. So it sounds like you got involved with the Harry Potter universe at a pretty early age. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you initially loved about Harry Potter and the universe. And I also was wondering if you started out from the beginning as a Snape fan early on, or did you come to the dark side gradually? Okay, so the Harry Potter books were first published when I was five years old. So this was 1997. So I don't actually remember being five years old. This was too long ago. I was too young to remember the books first coming out. I don't remember the first time reading them which is kind of sad. Let's be honest. I wish I could remember my very first impression of Harry Potter, but I don't because I was too young. I don't remember when I first picked it up, but it came out when I was five. And like I said, I've always, always been a reader, avidly reading everything I could get my hands on for my whole life. So I don't remember life before Harry Potter. It's always been a huge love of mine. I reread it and reread it and reread it over and over again. So I always loved it. And I would say that what really drew me to it then is what still draws me to it now is I love the whimsy of the magical world. I love that it's fun. I love even the silly 
parts of it, even. The spells that might be a little too silly, or the names, or just all of the small magic in it. Not necessarily, you know, the deep important things, but, you know, floating teacups and the sweaters that are knitting themselves. You know, just the small bits of it, the silly bits of it, the parts of it that are fun and colorful and just brightening the world and thinking about another place out there. And I liked that it was just so fun. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I remember when I first encountered Harry Potter, I didn't pick up the book and read it for a really long time. I was an adult when I first read it. But I do remember being a teenager and watching J.K. Rowling do an interview with Oprah when the series first came out. And Oprah was talking about all the little details that you were talking about, the owls and the spells and just the little details that were just fun. So I think a lot of people related to that and just had a lot of fun. Do you remember liking the Snape character early on or did that come later for you? Yes, I was thinking that I'd forgotten to mention that and that was actually very important because I love Severus Snape and I always have from the get-go. I loved that man, which is funny when you think about how young I was just being head over heels madly in love with the mean teacher. And I, I don't know that I could really tell you why. I just remember that I was always, from the very start, drawn to him. And even before fanfic, I was like, that is my guy. I love him. I live and die for Severus Snape. <laughs> that is so great. That is so, so great. I know that you said that you're not really sure why, but I want to dig in there just a little bit. Do you think it had more to do with his behavior and personality? Or was it the way he was described in canon, like his physical appearance? Or do you think it was like, could it have possibly been a combination of both? I think it could have been both because I just, I find him very fascinating now. I think he's a very interesting character and always was. So he was sort of mysterious in a way and very intense, which I I think I've always just been drawn to intensity because I am a very intense person. I'm a very passionate person. So that big energy always draws me in. So I think it was just something about how interesting he was. You know, he was the villain who wasn't really the villain. (laughs) So I don't know. I think maybe he was just unique and just something about his presence really drew me in and kept me in. Okay. Okay. So as you're talking, I'm thinking that, you know, it really could have been more of an energy thing because you are a Taurus with fire energy. And you were telling me in an email exchange that Severus Snape is also an earth sign with some fire elements thrown in there as well. So I'm wondering if you were just drawn energetically to this character. I think that is very possible because I was looking at the um, astrology side of it and really thinking, he does have a lot of earth and fire energy, which is very me as well. And then part of it's just that I know a lot of people I talk to have, and I think you have as well, described themselves as very like analytical people. And I don't really think of myself as that. I can't always explain the how and why of things. I just, I'm a very vibe person. I'm very aware of energy. 
And so I feel like oftentimes I understand things on like an energetic level that I can't always put to words. So I think part of it's just something about his presence and then part of it just being that it's very similar energy to mine as well. Yeah, it sounds almost like an intuitive attraction for you. Energetically, you just intuitively felt some sort of connection there with that character. Yes, because even with other characters and other things, I can't always say why. Like if you made me sit down to think about it and talk about it, I could probably dig it out. But the how and why is not always important to me. I just know that I am drawn to this person or this character and I care about them and that's what matters. And I feel like I get them where it matters, which is in the heart of it. And I don't have to be able to explain it just because I feel it in my heart. And that's what's important. Yes, I love that. That's absolutely completely valid. You know, it's kind of funny. I think this is, if I'm calculating this correctly in my brain, I believe that this is the third time that we are discussing Snary on the podcast. And I know that there are going to be some people out there who are not Snary fans who are going to roll their eyes and be like, oh my God, Chaos Blue, just leave it alone. Like, stop talking about it. But like, I can't. Okay. Like, I can't. I love Snary so much. I love Severus Snape so much. So my apologies to all the people out there rolling your eyes. But I'm just so fascinated by this pairing. I'm sorry. I love talking about it. So I was so excited to do another show about Snary. And you know what? We are bringing in different elements today to the discussion because, Danny, you are fairly well-versed in astrology. Way better than I am. I, I know very simple terms and I have a very simple understanding of what it is and everything, but I've always been fascinated with it. I've always been fascinated by the fact that Severus Snape and I share the same sun sign. We're both Capricorns and our birthdays are pretty close. We're both January babies. So I've always felt this kinship to Snape just because of that. So when I found out that you had pulled astrology charts for both Snape and Harry, I could not help myself. I want to talk about that with you. And I want to kind of dig into this relationship between Snape and Harry from an astrological perspective. So if you could pull those charts out for us and then just give us a rundown, school us here a little bit on the astrology of this pairing. Definitely. I will say that I am not a professional astrologer. I have not taken classes. I am very self-studied. It is just a subject that has fascinated me and that I'm very passionate about. So I learned it all on my own. Don't come for me. I don't know everything. But I will say that there is a misconception or people just don't know as much about it. And it's more than just your sun signs. So it's more than just looking and saying, oh, they're a Capricorn and a Leo. That doesn't work. There's more than your sun sign. You have in your birth chart, you plot it using your birth date, birth time, and place of birth, and that kind of plots all of the planets into different signs and houses, and then the relationship to the planets and what is known as aspects. So it's more than just they're a Capricorn and Leo. I will say I borrowed from an astrological website called Astrodienst. Someone had done it is what's called chart rectification, which is using what you know about a person and their life to sort of fill in the blanks. So we didn't have a birth time for Harry, but using what we did know, they sort of figured it out that 
they thought he was a Scorpio rising, and they plopped down a birth time, and that filled in the blanks. With Severus, we have his birthday. We know he was born in Cokeworth. That's not a real place, but if you look online, you can sort of see whereabouts that would be. So I picked a random town in that area, put him, which would have Harry as a Leo sun, Pisces moon, Scorpio rising. And for Severus, he is a Capricorn sun, Taurus moon. And for him, I also chose Scorpio rising. There are other planets, but I'm going to focus on what is called your big three right now, which is sun, moon, rising. So their sun signs don't really get along in your popular conception. But their moon signs, interestingly, do get along. Earth and water signs tend to get along well. Pisces and the Taurus, they get along. And then you look at the fact that their rising signs are the same. So that's very similar energy they're giving out, that they can meet each other on an energetic level that is very similar. I love, by the way, the idea of the two moon signs with Pisces and Taurus. I feel like that's a really good pairing. It really is. (laughs) Their rising signs are the same and they are what is called a conjunction. That's a very harmonious aspect. So with both being Scorpio rising signs, is that making them more compatible in that area or would they be butting heads all the time because they're both coming at it from a Scorpio energy? Does that question make sense what I'm asking there? Like, I'm just wondering if that is complementary or if it creates more friction. Both. So they get along in a way because they sort of come at things in the same way, but it can also... Some might say it's boring. There's like stagnation. They're too similar in a way. So it's very, similarity can be good because you understand it and you're coming at it from the same way, but it can also to like clashing. So it's very both. I also wonder with both of them being the same rising side, I also on the other side of the coin think that that could probably open up areas where they have enough similarity to be able to understand one another on some level. So it can also be that center point of them being able to come together, energetically speaking, I guess. Yes. And especially with like Scorpio. Scorpio is such an intense sign. So you're looking at very passionate people. They don't really come at things halfway. They're very, you know, a strong presence. Like I said, there's very passionate. They're very magnetic. Scorpio is very mysterious. So if you just look at Scorpio in and of itself, people with that energy are obviously going to understand that same energy, but that can also, you know, lead to people being too similar. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I'm fascinated personally by Scorpio energy. (laughs) I've known a lot of Scorpios in my life and they're all just amazing people. But it's just so interesting to me to see the different variations of Scorpio energy that I've seen in my real life. That is so interesting that they both have that Scorpio rising sign. I can see how they would have both because of that. Some sort of similar, like you said, they're coming at things from a very passionate place because you can definitely get that with the water sign energy. So they both have that passion. I think that they do go about it slightly differently, but they both at least have that baseline that's the same. Yes, because you also have to think that they also have different placements. So 
That's why astrology is not very simple. It's not so simple to say, oh, they both have the same rising sign, so that's good or bad. It can be anything, and then you also have to take into account the rest of the chart. How are their different placements just within themselves? The relationship between the different parts of themselves, let alone how that interacts with one another. Because another interesting thing about the rising sign is that your rising sign determined your chart ruler, which might be a little too much for people. So they're both Scorpio rising. So both of them have Pluto as the chart ruler, but their Plutos are in different places. So there's just that impact of, yes, it's similar energy. It's the Scorpio energy. It's that Plutonian energy, but it's being brought out in different ways. It's interacting differently in both of them. Okay. So with the moon signs, I want to talk about the moon signs here for a second. I loved that you put Severus Snape with a Taurus moon sign because he already has like this heavy earth energy, right? With his Capricorn sun sign. And then you pair that with another earth energy with the Taurus. And I just freaking love that because Capricorn is already stubborn enough all by itself. But then you add in that like bullish Taurus energy. And I think we were talking a little bit back and forth in email about just the tenacity, the stubborn tenacity that we see Severus Snape exhibit throughout the canon story. You would need that Taurus energy in there to get you through some of that really tough stuff that he has to end up doing. Yes. And actually, if we're wanting Severus by himself right now, it was, it was kind of having to do some guesswork to decide the rising sign. But I know someone else had suggested Capricorn rising and I kind of struggled back and forth with the Scorpio but I was like you would have way too much earth energy which earth is very structured just his birthday alone kind of plots you at that Capricorn sun Capricorn Mercury Saturn's in Capricorn (laughs) I just couldn't see him lacking Scorpio energy like there's that intensity in the mysteriousness and the secretiveness there that we needed from the Scorpio. But he's got so much earth energy that is really keeping him grounded and structured. But especially like that Taurus, the Capricorn, you know, digging your heels in, making do, like putting in the work, (laughs) getting things done. That's very strong earth energy. Yes, it serves him well. He has to end up doing some really awful, hard things, especially with his work as a spy, you know, and all the awful things that he has to do to get that accomplished and to get that done. And you just think, man, I I feel like that earth energy served him well there, that he was able to get through that. It definitely, definitely did. So he's got that earth energy, but he also has, like, like we said, he's got plenty of fire as well. Yeah, that's Venus, Mars, and Jupiter all in Sagittarius. (laughs) So that's a lot, like, very like me. It's a lot of Earth and a lot of fire, and those energies don't really mesh well together. So you're just thinking of, like, scorched Earth is what it feels like. I was just about to ask you how those different energies kind of, like, play with each other there. Because, yeah, you have the Earth and then you have the fire. Would that be like an internal struggle with both of those? Actually, I read a book 
by, I forget who it was by, but it, it was this astrologer who was writing a book for each of the elements. And he specifically mentioned somewhere that someone with a lot of earth and a lot of fire and not much else, that is like a very difficult combination because that fire is very energizing. It's very moving forward. It's very hot. And then earth is very grounded. It's very structured. Like, like I said, like digging in your heels. So it feels like very like internal struggle because they're very strong energies that don't, they just don't mesh very easily. But I can also see then how he would need the fire energy though, to sort of propel him forward in certain aspects of his life. I have met some earth energies that are extremely passive personalities. So I wonder if he really needed that fire element because he's a very active character. So I wonder if that maybe helped with the getting shit done part. Yes, because earth signs are very, uh, they're very dedicated and they're very going to put in the work. The fire energy is very energetic for lack of a better word. So it's really giving you the fire, the oomph you need to get things done. But it, it also, you know, that's where that passion is coming from. That's where that heat is coming from. That's where that temper is coming from. Oh, yes. The infamous Snape temper, <laughs> which I love, which I love. You know, I love this idea of Snape having the, the moon sign in Taurus, and then we have Harry's moon sign in Pisces. I have not had the pleasure of knowing very many Pisces in my life, but recently in the last couple of years, I have had some beautiful Pisces come into my life as my really good friends, and they're gorgeous. The emotional aspects that I am getting from that sign is just amazing, and I love it. And I feel like that really works well in Harry's chart when I think about that being his sign combination for the big three, because we do know that Harry is probably more in touch with his emotional side, right? A little more emotionally intelligent. A lot of people in fandom have acknowledged that Harry is a lot more intuitive in the way that he approaches life and approaches the world. So I'm wondering if that Pisces moon is the factor there in that. It definitely can be. Water signs are very emotional, very intuitive, very deep. And Pisces is the last sign of the zodiac. So a lot of like the tropical zodiac is looking at the progression. So Aries is the start of spring. And so you're going through. So Pisces is what you would call like the oldest sign. It's very wise. It's very deep. It's very emotional and intuitive and about a like higher plane and not very stuck in the mud or, you know, stuck in a rut. It's very open flowing. I love that. I find myself very attracted to water sign energy. <laughs> so anytime that I see it pop up, I'm like, oh, shiny. <laughs> I just love it so much. You have a lot of earth in your chart and earth and water get along very well. It's phrased very well somewhere else and I've forgotten it, but it's basically the idea of earth and water go together because you're like putting water in the soil and it's helping things grow. 
and then air and fire go together because air is like propelling the fire. They're energies that feed each other. Yes, absolutely. It's so fascinating to see how the different energies go together. I'm wondering if you take all of these like big three signs into consideration between Snape and Harry, where do you see the most compatibility and where do you see the challenges? I'm just kind of wondering about those two things. I think your biggest problem is going to be, like I said, the earth and fire energy doesn't go very easily together. So, you know, Harry's fire sun versus Severus's earth sun doesn't really mesh. But that's also pitting Harry's fire sun against Severus's earth moon and his water rising. But Harry's also got the water moon and rising. So that's Pisces and Scorpio. So the biggest compatibility is actually their moon signs, the earth, the water. Those planets specifically have an aspect. It's a sextile. It's within five degrees. Don't know that that means anything to anyone else, but it's a close aspect. So those planets are, they're relating to each other more closely than just their signs. It's more than just, oh, water and earth go together well. It's also they're forming an aspect, so they have an active relationship with each other that is very harmonious. And the moon is like your emotional state. It's your subconscious. So they're at home with each other at an emotional level because where their heart is, is where it works with them, where they might clash in other areas and they might have aspects of them that aren't so easy, but at the heart of them, at their emotional center they connect and they're comfortable and they understand each other where it matters. Okay, that's so romantically beautiful. I was like trying not to cry when I'm explaining it because it's like, and you see that with them is like they clash in so many ways and I can't get into everything, but they're even looking at their chart, there's a lot of parts of them that clash that don't understand each other that are too intense that are not meshing. But there are other parts of them that are just, it just feels like it's meant to be. I don't know. And it just, especially for two people that have been through so much, the fact that they can have that and have their hearts be safe with each other and nourish each other is, oh, it's, it does my heart good. <laughs> yes. I think it's so beautiful that the compatibility is emotional. Like you said, the hearts are safe with each other emotionally that's where they connect and they have the most in common and I just think that's so beautiful so romantically beautiful thank you so much for bringing us some aspects to consider this pairing with I love that perspective I wanted to talk about your fan fiction that we are going to be talking about today like you said earlier it is one of the stories where you had multi-chapter I know you said that you mostly just do shorter one shots and things like that but this story is called The Best Kept Secrets, and we're looking at, let me see, how many chapters are in this? 23? Yeah, so there's 23 chapters in here. So gorgeous. I am so in love with this story. It had so many things going on and so many beautiful parts where I just, I took so many copious notes here as I was going through it. I found it so thoughtful and compelling. Can you tell us what inspired this story? Tell us what it's about and what themes were you exploring here? 
That is an excellent question because I don't know that I always knew the answer to it. The story began years ago. The original conception of it was about a decade ago now, I guess. This this story has male pregnancy in it, which I know a lot of people are not fans of, but it's always been something that I really loved and read a lot of, and it must have been on some reread of The Deathly Hollows, and I think it came into mind like, oh, well, what if Harry's kids were actually Snape's and not Ginny's? And it was just my deep, snary love coming out of the works, like, mm, well, Harry and Snape are meant to be together, so what if his kids were Snape's? <laughs> I personally loved that you told this story from an older adult perspective. Harry's in his 40s here. Snape's in his 60s. You know, so they've had a lot of time to deal with this issue and a lot of time to reflect. And I just felt like you were coming at it from a very mature point of view. And it was just, good God, so good. So I think uh, back in the day, it was very, I had to have my boys together. And the canon just upset me because Harry and Jenny are just, they're not soulmates. Harry and Snape are soulmates. They were fated for one another. So it was personally offensive that he ended up with Ginny. So it was my brain constantly at work trying to be like, no, it's Snary. So it's this idea of like wanting Harry to have kids with Snape. And well, what if his canon kids were Snapes? At least James and Albus are here. And then, you know, obviously for that to work and have it be even semi-canon compliant, that involves infidelity. And I thought of this story years ago, and I began to write it. And I posted five chapters, maybe, on fanfiction.net. And then that was around the time where writer's block really, really screwed my life over. I didn't write for a while after that. I don't know if maybe the story was just too much because it was too personal in a way, because it does deal with infidelity, which has impacted my life a lot, because this story is not event by event what happened in my real life, but it is very similar to things that have happened in my life. So it was very personal in a way, sort of combining, I guess, real life experience with, you know, my own personal headcanons and my own feelings about the characters. You know, I I don't like cheating, and I, I can only deal with it in the specific context that Harry and Snape can't possibly stay away from one another, and they, even as loyal people as they are, that they break even that for one another, that they are so devoted to each other that their own personal values take a back seat because they just can't. Like, they are so in love and so drawn to each other. But that's also kind of conflicting with my own personal values because, obviously, I don't agree with cheating on your partner and it has negatively impacted my life in ways, you know, because my own family was impacted by that, by my father cheating on my mother so I think it was a lot of my own personal feelings and things that I hadn't actually moved past or dealt with conflicting with the story that I was trying to tell. And I got back to writing in 2019. And once I was 
back in the game, so to speak, I was drawn to that story again. And I was like, that was a story that was in my heart that I felt like I really needed to tell. And even though it had been years since I touched it, I had to tell that story. There had been some time, so I rewrote what I had and then finished it. When I decided to finish the story, I'm a very, I'm a big planning person. Like when it comes to plotters versus panthers, I am the biggest plotter who's ever plotted. Like everything is very detailed. I always know exactly what's going to happen. So before I even started the rewriting process, I fully outlined the story. And I mean, scene by scene, like every chapter, scene by scene, I knew exactly how it was going to go from start to finish. So I had it fully outlined. And I think the end product is like 115,000 words. And I wrote that all during NaNoWriMo in 2019. And I finished before the month was up. So I think within 27 days, I had written over 100,000 words. Oh my god. Yeah, I uh, thank my outline for that because I was before work. I was writing on my lunch break, after work, on weekends, just sitting there with my outline. But I knew the story so well and I knew exactly what was going to happen. So I fully wrote it in a month and then worked on editing and then posting it in 2020. That is amazing. That must have felt so intense for you because, you know, this story deals with a lot of really intense emotional like subjects. And then to do it in such a short amount of time, was that so emotionally intense for you? Yes, but in like a good way. Because like I said, it was very personal and it was stuff that I had not fully dealt with. So it felt like I was fully like accepting my feelings about what had happened in my personal life and accepting my preferences in fiction and sort of having it all come together and sitting with it and understanding myself and understanding these characters and being able to get it all out of me. It felt very therapeutic. Like I was just getting rid of a bunch of gunk that was just sitting in my soul. So it felt very freeing, actually. So I was just sitting at my keyboard, just slamming away at it, just pouring all of these words out and just feeling like I understood something finally that I felt like I'd not really reconciled before then. I love hearing you talk about how this story came to be. Now that I understand a little bit more of the contextual background of where you were coming from on this, it makes even more sense to me than it did before. Because one of the things that I adored about this story is you are telling it from many different points of view. You have the point of view from Snary, Snary, from Harry and Snape as the couple that has committed the infidelity. And then the story is really taking place more in the modern sense because in your story, Albus and James are pretty much grown up already. They're like in their late teens. I think James has just graduated from Hogwarts in your story. Albus is in his later years in Hogwarts, so he's an older teen as well. It was so interesting to me that not only did you have that focus on 
Harry and Snape and their choices, but you also explored how those choices affected their children as they're growing up and as they're, you know, in their later teen years dealing with this stuff. I thought it was so interesting, the different themes that I felt you were exploring here. I did feel like at least one of those themes was choice and regret because you have Harry and Snape who are making these choices to be with each other. And because of some happenstance, right, Harry gets pregnant, (laughs) you know, with these kids. And now they have to figure out what they're going to do. And they make this choice that Harry's going to stay married to Ginny and they're going to pass these kids off as Ginny's. And that's the story that they're going to tell everyone. Snape is just kind of in the background knowing that these are his kids, his sons, but he sort of allows and decides with Harry that, you know, for everybody's sake, they're going to pretend that these are Ginny's kids. And that's the choice that they made. And then when we're in the uh, the modern point of view with the kids being kind of grown up, you start to see the consequences of that choice and the regret that follows with all of those different choices because there's a lot of fallout. They choose not to tell the kids. So the whole time that they're growing up, the kids don't know except that Albus finds out because Albus is very smart. I loved your Albus because he was just so smart and so intellectual about everything. And he finds out and he tries so hard to keep it a secret for a while, but he can't keep it to himself. And eventually the secret kind of blows up in the family and now everybody knows. And this was a little personal for me too, as I was reading this, we did not have infidelity issues in my family, but we did have a scenario in my family that was kept a secret for a really long time. And when the secret came out, the fallout that happened in my own family looked very, very similar to what I saw happen in this story. And I thought, oh my God, this is so real. This is so amazing. This is so good because that's exactly what happened. I loved how you explored the emotional points of view from James and Albus's perspectives. Because here they are finding out about this information like, you know, oh shit, our dad's actually Severus Snape and oh shit, like our parents lied to us. And all of that emotional fallout because I feel like the kids in some senses felt, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know if the word I'm looking for is responsible, especially with Albus. I felt like he almost felt guilty about this, even though it wasn't his choice that led to all of these things but he still felt this really heavy responsibility for it anyway. Yes, it's very personal. Like, you can logically say, Albus, that wasn't your fault. And Albus can logically think, how could I have known? What could I have done? Like, it's obviously not their fault, but it's hard not to, even if it doesn't make sense, to feel something because you're so close to it and you're so connected to it. You feel some sort of ownership of it, whether or not it belongs to you. And that's what I I like to write. I like to write very weird, complicated, it doesn't make sense emotions because emotions don't logic, okay? You, You can try 
analyze and say X, Y, Z, and maybe you can figure out the why of it. But at the end of the day, like, you can't tell yourself, stop feeling this. Like, you're gonna feel it. And that's sort of what this story is in the extreme, because it's very complicated and things don't always make sense, but life doesn't always make sense. Yeah, you know, I felt so emotionally connected to the way that Albus reacts to this whole thing. Because I remember when The Secret came out in my own family, I was, you know, fairly young. I was probably in my early 20s when that happened. And when that secret came out, I remember as an early like 20 something feeling so paralyzed because I was so afraid of history repeating itself in my own relationships. At that point, I had never had a boyfriend or a girlfriend or any kind of relationship with anybody, right? But I was thinking about it because I'm in my early 20s and that's what you do. But I remember being so terrified of being in a relationship with anybody because I thought, oh my God, look at this complicated, crazy ass family that I come from and look at these dynamics. How can I not bring this into my own relationships with other people that I love? So I connected so much with your Albus because in your story, Albus really struggles with this whole secret coming out and he ends up breaking up with his girlfriend at one point because he is so terrified of bringing his own parents' crazy dynamics into his own life and his own relationships. And it almost felt like he was paralyzed too. So afraid of history repeating itself. I connected to that so deeply. Yes, and I feel that because it's very similar for me is just that fear really getting to you and impacting you. And even if you're so determined that that's not going to be me, you're still affected by that. Like, that's still where you're coming from. It's still, whether it's you being directly involved or not, that's still your family. That is still something you're experiencing and it's still impacting you. And there's really no escaping the impact. Yes, there's no escaping the impact. When I was talking to Snagoff last month, we were talking about this concept of uh, intergenerational family trauma. And I sort of felt like that same theme was here in your story, too, because, you know, the choices that Harry and Snape make, they do affect those children. They do, especially as the, the children get older and the children are wrestling with this information. And trying to figure it out and understand what does this mean for me? What am I supposed to do with this information? And it was so interesting to me that I felt like you were also sort of exploring not only the intergenerational family trauma, but also family histories repeating themselves. Because in your story, Harry and Snape accidentally <laughs> pass on the ability to conceive children onto their son, James. And then James <laughs> has to deal with that. And I felt like, oh, my God, history repeating itself. Oh, my God. But it was so beautiful to see Harry and Snape as older individuals try to help their son through that and to offer him advice that they wish they would have gotten when they were his age. There was something just really compelling about that. 
Yes, and I don't often see and I don't often write them as being older in that way. And I don't know what it was. But in, in the way that Albus, his fear was very personal to me. A lot of James's reactions were also very pulled from myself. He was very angry and very affected by it. I was very Albus in that I am not going to go through this. I refuse to be my father. I am never going to do this to someone else. And James, like, he sees how this has affected his family. But even before he knew the truth, he was already screwing up. (laughs) Like he was going after someone who was with someone else. And that's the thing is, it was kind of hypocritical. And it didn't make sense. Maybe he should have understood because James was so in love with Teddy. Like, why couldn't he understand? how deeply in love Harry and Severus were, but it's because it's affecting him. Like, he's not going to sit here and, like, give them the benefit of the doubt when he's upset. (laughs) So it was, like, his very strong, like, lashing out and being angry that I really connected with, and it was Albus's fear and running away, like, in the opposite direction that I connected with with Albus. Yeah, I loved how you explored it different aspects of the fallout through the eyes of these two characters, Albus and James. And I will say, I loved the way that you presented the whole James and Teddy relationship to us, because if I remember correctly, he was kind of starting to mess up with Teddy just a little bit before he even knew what the secret was. I feel like that's so true to life. When I found out about my family's secret, I had to take a big, long look at my own life. And I was like horrified to realize that some of the mistakes that I had been making before I knew they had already been done. And I just thought, oh, my God, am I my family and I can never get away from that? It was this terrifying thing where, you know, to realize that, oh, God, you know, sometimes we do end up making the same mistakes. I don't know if you want to call them generational curses or whatever, but like the same things that our parents and their parents do, sometimes we end up doing too without even realizing it. And then you have to grapple with that and you have to deal with that. Yeah, I very much feel that because like I said, I was very running away from that, but I was so focused on I don't want to be my father. I was so focused on that, that I became my mother in the sense that I ended up attracting the sort of person who would hurt me that way. So I was so afraid of hurting other people, but I wasn't really being very careful. And I ended up in situations where I was like hurt and, you know, being the um, victim of the situation rather than the villain of the situation. So I was so terrified of being the villain that I fell into the other end of it because I was just so focused on that one part of it. And it does sort of feel inevitable sometimes. Like, can I just not get away from this at all? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. I completely relate to what you're saying there, that sometimes you want so badly to not 
make the same mistakes that your family has been making for hundreds of years, you know? And in the pursuit of that, sometimes we end up becoming exactly what we were afraid of in one way or another. And what do you do with that? You know, like sometimes, like you said, it feels like you can never get away from that. And I find that such a compelling theme to wrestle with. Speaking of mothers, I really, really enjoyed what you did with Ginny here. You know, we haven't really talked about her yet in the story context wise, but I was so fascinated by what you did. Your Ginny was a brand new experience for me. And a lot of the stories that I read, Ginny's not really all that fleshed out, (laughs) you know, but yours was. I'm not sure if I mentioned this already, but your chapter six with Ginny, you kind of put this montage of different memories from Jenny's point of view. And I almost like burst out crying when I was reading all of those because I could really see emotionally where she was coming from in all of those scenarios. And to me, the spot that she's in is so, so difficult. Part of her does love Harry and wants to make the marriage work. So she decides to go along with their plan of like claiming these kids as her own. And that's a choice that she makes. And that choice does have consequences. And it does end up affecting her emotionally in ways that I don't think she really anticipated when she made those choices initially to kind of keep everything a secret. And it was just so interesting to see as the story progresses how those choices affect her life and affect her emotionally, again, in ways that I don't think she could have anticipated. Yes. What's very interesting about the point about Ginny is that the story as it is was as it was always meant to be. But when I first thought of the story, and it's really funny to say, but when I was younger, I was not a Ginny fan at all, but I was also very against character bashing. So it was this interesting thing where I knew that readers would not like Ginny because she's in the way. (laughs) And when I first started posting it originally, there was a commenter who said something to that effect, like basically get out of the way, Ginny. And as much as I didn't like Ginny back then for reasons, I have no idea. I didn't want her to not be a person. I didn't want her to be the villain. Because often in stories, especially when it's your main characters who are cheating, they always have to have a very good reason. And it's because the other partner is horrible. They're abusive or neglectful. They're completely horrible people and they deserve to be cheated on. Or if it's a love triangle, then there's always one very obvious choice. It's never, you know, two really good choices and it's difficult. It's always one is very, very obvious. And I don't find that to be very appealing myself. I don't like the right choice being shoved in my face. So however I felt about Ginny, I didn't want her to be nothing. I didn't want her to be this bad person for the sake of having my couple be acceptable. They were doing a bad thing. At the end of the day, they made the wrong choice. They did something bad. (laughs) There is no good excuse for cheating. There's no 
Ginny deserved to be cheated on. She didn't. Harry screwed up. <laughs> if he was in love with Snape, he should have ended things with Ginny. If he couldn't decide between them, he should have taken time away, time to himself, away from both of them to think about it. He should have done any number of things, but he chose to cheat on her, and it was not okay. <laughs> so even back then, I didn't want it to be. It, it, what happened to Jenny was okay, and Jenny doesn't matter. Because even if I didn't like her, Jenny was still a person. And she was not a bad person. She didn't earn what happened to her. And when I came back to the story, it was with no appreciation for Jenny. And I think that made it a little easier to write. Not that it was hard to write because I didn't like her, it was hard to write, I think, maybe because I didn't understand her as well. And I think it was understanding her more and having more appreciation for her as a person that made it easier to see from her perspective and really do her justice the way that I always wanted to, even when I didn't like her very much. Yes. And, you know, I appreciated that so much that that's the approach that you took. I'm like you. I'm not a huge Ginny fan. And I do see her treated in a lot of fan fictions as just an inconvenient truth that needs to be gotten rid of, you know, <laughs> like you said. But you didn't do that here. You let her be a whole, complete person with her own perspective and her own pain. That's one of the things that I loved about this entire story is you take the time to show the pain that this whole situation has caused everybody. And you allow us that opportunity to see that pain in action in all of these different characters. I was hoping that I could read really quick a line. I think this is actually from chapter six from Jenny's point of view, which I just loved. So the line goes, Jenny had every reason to leave. Staying only welcomed more heartache, the wounding of her pride. Time and again, she wondered, was this a testament to her strength or evidence of her weakness? I think that Ginny struggled so badly with that decision to stay, especially as she gets older, wondering, did I make the right choice? Did I make the right choice? Was my staying a testament to my strength or evidence of my weakness? And that she has to grapple with that was just, oh my God, I loved it. Not that she was going through the pain, but just how real that was and how true that is. And I just love that you didn't, you know, like you said, you didn't gloss over the whole infidelity thing and be like, oh, yes, Ginny deserves to be gotten rid of and cheated on. No, there were a lot of unfortunate, terrible choices made that caused all of this pain for everybody. And it was just so interesting and compelling to see how that pain resonates throughout the entire family and affects everybody differently. You know, of course, we can say Ginny is the victim here. And she is. In so many ways, she is, even though she did make choices to stay and she did make choices to go along with the lie and everything. But I thought it was really interesting that you also take us through the pain that Harry and Snape experience as well, because while they are the instigators of the infidelity and they're kind of the ones that make these bad choices to begin with, you can absolutely see how these choices have caused both of them pain as well. And you didn't shy away from that. And I really appreciated that. I'm glad because, and especially the line you chose for Jenny was very what I was aiming for and was sort of the perfect description of that because Jenny is a strong character. She's not someone to just lay down and take it. 
but she loved Harry so much, so it sort of brought into question, like, what is this and why am I doing it? And it's part of why I liked all of the different points of view was that everyone has reasons for what they do, whether they always make sense to you, whether it fully makes sense to them, whether it's the right thing to do or not. Like you don't go into things knowing what the right answer is. You have your best guess, but that doesn't guarantee that it's going to work out or that it's actually the right thing to do. And everyone was coming from their own place with things and everyone Everyone screwed up. Harry, Ginny, and Severus should not have kept that secret. Harry and Severus shouldn't have carried on their affair. Ginny probably shouldn't have stayed, or at least shouldn't have put up with it. James shouldn't have hooked up with Teddy knowing he was with someone else. Albus shouldn't have dumped his girlfriend out of fear. Like, <laughs> everyone was making mistakes, but you... At least I knew what those reasons were. It wasn't out of nowhere. It wasn't, I am doing this for the plot. They all had their own emotions, their own backgrounds, where they were coming from. And they were selfish. All of them were selfish in their own way. Harry wanted to have his perfect family, but he also wanted Severus. Severus wanted Harry. Jenny wanted Harry and she wanted her perfect family. They all wanted things and they were all selfish in their own ways, but they were never intending to hurt anyone. It was never, mwahahaha, I'm going to do this bad thing because I love being bad. They're human people and human people are flawed and human people screw up. It doesn't make them evil. Harry is not evil because he cheated on Snape. He is still overall a good person, but he did a bad thing. And you can't argue that what he did was okay. He's a person who is good deep down, but he's done a bad thing. And that's human. No one does good all of the time. No one is perfect all of the time. No one has good, pure thoughts. All of the time. That's not real. Oh, I love how you're putting that. This story is so human. It is. It's so human. I love that. Thank you so much for that. Did you have a favorite point of view? Because you do tell this story from lots of different point of views. Was there a favorite one that you enjoyed writing from the most? That is very difficult because... I enjoyed them all for different reasons, and I think exploring each of them was important in a way, not only for the story, like for the story, yes, because it was important to see where everyone was coming from and how they were all reacting to it, but it was important for me to explore those different things that I had been thinking and feeling in my own life, but then also having to consider what it might have been like for other people in this situation, which was probably why it was so hard for me to write when I was younger, because I was so much younger and it was a lot more fresh than it was when I wrote it in 2019. So 
I think I would have to say Harry and Severus might have been my favorite points of view because I love them so much. (laughs) Because that's my ship. That is my OTP forever. I love them so much. They're where my heart is. But then it was also funny because in the situation, if you're comparing it to real life, they're the ones who did the bad thing. They're the ones who, you know, doing the thing that affected my life. They cheated. They caused this big disruption in a family. Their actions had impact on so many people. So when you think about it, it's just funny that exploring that perspective that was so different from what I actually experienced, I think was important in a way. But then also just how much I love those characters made me a little more. It was it was easier for me to write because I know them so well and love them so much. And I love seeing them together. You know, before the show started, we were talking a little bit about Severus Snape and, you know, how conventionally unattractive he is and everything. And you said something to me. You said, let him be ugly. And I said, yes, let him be ugly. As you're talking about the point of views that you constructed here for Harry and Snape, that line is running through my head. But in this scenario, it would be let them be human. Let them be human and let them make those mistakes and let them explore those mistakes and experience the consequences and then let them grapple with that. That's what you did here. So even though it is kind of funny, (laughs) you know, they're coming at it from this place of they made some horrible choices and made some awful mistakes. You allow them to be human here. And I think that that's beautiful. I loved reading this story. I know that earlier in our conversation, you had mentioned being an outliner when you write, and you had kind of gone over a little bit about the outlining process here with this story. I was wondering if outlining is a process that you do for all of your stories, or does it just sort of depend on what you're writing? Every single thing I write is outlined. Even the shortest thing, I have to know where they go beginning to end, even if it's not written down, because some things are too short for it to really be written down. I at least have a mental outline. I know where it goes. I know where everyone is. I know who they are. I know what they're feeling. I always go into it fully prepared. (laughs) Do you think that it's your Taurus energy giving you that penchant for outlining fan fiction? Probably. That is a very earth sign thing to be very prepared And for Taurus, it's a very comfort thing and security thing. So it eases my soul to go into it knowing everything. I can go into it, do what I need to do, and be very confident because I have all the tools I need at my disposal. I have my map. And and this is the thing in, in that even on the off chance that things are not going perfectly when you've outlined something, I look at it like a map. So even if you have to take a detour, you still have the map, you still know where you're going, and you find the next best path to get there. So it's having that map and having those tools and knowing that you're prepared for anything. Oh, I love that. I think that's the best explanation for outlining that I've ever heard on the show so far, that it just kind of gives you that map of like understanding what the endpoint is. So that even if you do decide to take a detour, because that's a perfectly valid thing to do when you're writing, right? Sometimes things come up, but you at least have that idea of where you're headed. 
with the story, even with the detours. So I think that's really, really cool. Continuing to talk about the writing process, you mentioned in one of your emails to me that you actually use astrology in other areas of your writing, that sometimes you do use astrology to help you craft characters in your fan fiction writing. I'd love to hear more about that. Definitely. Especially with the different characters I've not written before, or if it's from their perspective when I've not written from their perspective before, you really need to understand who that person is to be able to write them. You have to know who they are, at least to some degree. And sometimes that isn't very easy. And by having the knowledge that I have about astrology, it's very energy. Like, I think we've use that word to death, but it's very that energy and knowing, having some concept of that person. So what I do, let's say during October of last year, I wrote a one shot called Play Me the Classics, which is from Kingsley's point of view. It's a Kingsley Draco story. So it's not a ship I write very much. And I've never written from the perspective of someone like Kingsley. And Kingsley in my head was I wanted someone who was very calm and patient and that is not energy I feel personally. I have too much fire going on. I am too passionate. I have too much going on for me to have an easy time with that. So what I have is for my birthday one year, my partner gifted me with astrology dice. They are 12-sided die and one is for the planets. One is for the signs, and one is for the houses. So I'll at least roll for the big three. That's that's going to be your big impression of a person is going to be the sun, the moon, and the rising sign. So I'll set the planet die to whatever planet I want to roll for. Then I'll roll the sign. I'll roll the house. And that gives me some idea of who they are. It's not perfect, even if it's not fully you know, I'm not writing their full backstory before writing 4,000 words. I at least had a concept of who he was. So my thought was how I envisioned Kingsley gave me very Libra energy. But I was like, let me roll this dice. And the sun dice said, yes, you were right. He's a Libra. But, you know, rolling for like the moon and the rising sign sort of gave more to that. I think it gave me Virgo moon for him. And it just sort of confirmed the idea I had for him in my head. I rolled dice on it. It's not like I fully planned it out. But by rolling the dice and seeing the pieces there, I was like, oh, I know these pieces. I understand what this means. And it it was still not easy to write him because, again, that is not a personality that I feel very easily. But it helped to keep in mind, and especially... Even if it's not something that was easy to write, it was at least information I had in the background. So it was very keeping in mind that Libra Virgo energy while writing him out. Also, during October of last year, I wrote a story from Scorpius's perspective called Teardrop in Your Palm. I'd not written a story from Scorpius's point of view before, so I had some idea of him from and this is going to be controversial, The Cursed Child. I know people hate it. I don't hate it. And I love Scorpius in that story. So I wanted to kind of stay true to that in a way. 
but because there's less information about him than, say, other characters, and I'd not written him before. So rolling the dice and having that in mind, oh, he's, and this is really funny, actually, because I rolled the dice for Scorpius's sun sign, and it came up Scorpio, and I was like, oh, that should have been obvious. (laughs) No! (laughs) The dice really looked me in the eye and said, you dumb lady, he's a Scorpio, it's in his name. (laughs) Oh my god! They're like, duh. (laughs) And I don't know why it didn't occur to me, because I've read in stories before where he was a Scorpio, just when I was writing this, I was like, who are you, Scorpius? What are your placements? And that's Scorpio coming up like, oh, wow, I'm really dumb. (laughs) That's so funny. That is so, so funny. I bet you had a good laugh when that came up on the die as Scorpio. (laughs) I did. And then because, (laughs) because I am a Leo moon, I had to run around and tell literally everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's hilarious, though. It really is. It's hilarious that that would happen. I just think it's so fascinating that you use these concepts. In crafting these characters, especially with characters that you're just not as familiar with, because it kind of goes back to that thing you were saying about maps and outlines. These elements just kind of help give you a map for these characters that you're writing for so that you kind of can keep those elements in mind. And it just helps you as you're going along with your project. So I think that that is so incredibly fascinating because I've never heard any other writer say that before that they use astrology to help them when they're crafting fan fiction. So I thought that was so, so cool. We've established that you've been writing fan fiction for quite some time, going all the way back to the adultfanfiction.net days. (laughs) I am wondering, what's the best writing advice that you have ever received? Well, this is, this was another one I had to think on because I am not a person who takes advice very well. (laughs) So I think if someone came up to me and was like, this is how you do this, I'd be like, no, this is my writing. I write my way. But I've definitely heard quotes from other authors where it's less personal and in my face telling me, Danny, you must do this. But there is a quote by Stephen King that I like a lot. It says, if you want to be a writer, you must do two things above all others. Read a lot and write a lot. And I've heard a lot of people say, you know, write a lot because, you know, what you're doing is writing. That's practice. So the more you write, the better you're going to be at writing. And that's true. But I think less focus is on reading a lot. But that is just as important because it's all stories. It's understanding different concepts and seeing how other people do things. Even if you're not, I'm going to write like Stephen King. It is still good to know how Stephen King writes. If you don't want to write like Brandon Sanderson or J.K. Rowling or whoever, if you don't want to write exactly like them, it is still important to know what is out there and how different people craft stories. But what I would say specifically in the fandom context is read a lot of fanfic. Because fanfic is very different from traditional media in a way. So understanding what's out there is important. Understanding how people 
do different things is important, how different tropes are written and portrayed, what is out there in a, in a way of understanding it's okay to write XYZ because other people write XYZ. There is a whole array of things that are available to you. And it's very creative in a way. So it's sort of getting variety in and sort of feeding your own imagination by experiencing other stories. So it's important in the way of understanding how fanfic is written and what is out there for when you're writing your own fanfic. But the other thing I would say to that, which might not quite be what Stephen King meant, but for me, when I say read fanfic, is that fandom is a community. And so by reading other fanfic, you are being involved in that community and you're showing support for other creators. So if you're creating things, then you want people to be experiencing those creations and you want feedback and you want appreciation. So if you want those, why wouldn't you give that to someone else? So it's about being involved in your community and showing support for your community while also being invaluable to you by learning from other creators. Well, I love that answer. I love that. I love your point, especially about being a good member of the community and that aspect of, you know, when you engage with someone else's work, that's a form of showing support for your community and your fellow fan fiction writers. And then that will come back to you. It will because it's such a beautiful thing. And I just love that you've made that point, especially because I happen to know that you are a beloved member of the Snary community. People love hearing from you and people love receiving comments from you on their various works. And so I just think that you're a rock star. Keep up doing that because it really makes people stay and uh, helps encourage people, I think, to keep working and keep striving and keep producing amazing work. So that's beautiful. We're getting to the end here. I was wondering before we close out, are there any other fan fiction writers that you'd like to shout out on the show real quick? All of them. <laughs> but we don't have time for that. I probably have too many. But it's important for me to acknowledge the people who have impacted me with their stories and people I respect as creators. I wish I had time to shout them all out, but I don't. So I will try to keep it brief. I will start out by recommending Eldritcher, which they're an author I discovered last year and fell madly in love. I have told them this. Uh, <laughs> I find their writing to be very strange and unique and beautiful. It's very different. So if anything, the first thing of theirs I read was The Tum Tum Tree. Their writing is very poetic and very from mythology. It was just such an experience reading that story that I read it and reread it every day for like a week before I could comment. <laughs> and I was so determined to comment because I thought, this needs something. I just didn't know what to say about it because it just completely blew me away. It knocked every thought out of my head. I was like, how do I put into words how stunning this is? I eventually managed, but The Tum Tum Tree by Eldritcher, very good. They also gifted me a story. I should have looked up how to pronounce this. <laughs> 
It's Dithyrum. I probably said that badly, but that is also an excellent story. Anything by them, I just wanted to give specific titles so people know where to start if they're going to look into these authors. Another person would be Silver Eye 5. They wrote the Needs Must series, which is excellent. Chef's Kiss. They also wrote Something to Say, which I would also highly recommend. And then I also have to shout out two very dear friends of mine, if I cannot cry while talking about them. (laughs) My friend, Lila Dyern. She writes a lot of alternate universe. It's all snary and stunning. She is out here writing actual literature for free on the internet. You could put her words on a bookshelf and you could take it off of the shelf and flip through it and go, yep, that's a classic. Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous writing. Two of her works I would recommend would be Certain Dark Things and Compulsory Figures if you're just looking for something hot and short. And then my friend, Pina Napone, who is a fantastic person on top of being a very creative and skilled person. She does very beautiful art. She has done a podfic, and she has such a great variety of stories. She's another person who would be like a chocolate box kind of author. Two of her works I would recommend would be Ghosts of Christmas and Set Phasers to Stun, but again, any of these authors, I would recommend anything they write. Even if I've not read it yet, I will just blind recommend their work because it's all really, really good. I could probably keep going on with more people, but I don't want (laughs) to keep you here for an hour talking about people. (laughs) Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant because all of those are names that have not been mentioned on the show yet. So that's perfect. I love that. We will make sure that the links to those authors and stories get put up on the show notes so that people can check those out because they sound amazing. That is awesome. Do you have any last words for us today, Danny, before we get out of here? I would say to everyone to be brave. Be brave with your creations. Be brave in your everyday life. Be brave in trying new things because this for me is very scary and very new, but it's important to try new things. Be brave in keeping your mind open to other people and understanding people. Be brave. Don't be scared. Well, being scared is normal, but do the scary things anyway. I love that. Thank you so much for that incredible inspiration. I love it. Dan Puff, thank you so much for joining us today. Check out her stories on AO3 and give her some love. You can find the Fanfic Maverick online at fanficmaverickpodcast.com, on Tumblr at fanficmaverickpodcast, on Instagram and Twitter at fanficmaverick, and I can always be reached at fanficmaverick at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next episode. In the meantime, keep on rolling. <laughs>